Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. This Friday marks the anniversary of Juneteenth, the holiday that commemorates the moment on June 19, 1865, when enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, learned they were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation and the Confederacy's defeat in the Civil War. It's also known as Freedom Day or Liberation Day. Juneteenth has been celebrated in various ways since the mid-1860s, and this Friday, my colleague Brenda Parker, Mount Vernon Character Interpreter and African-American Interpretation and Special Projects Coordinator, will perform Freedom Skies. It's a special live stream event focused on the experiences of four individuals at Mount Vernon on Manumission Day, January the 1st, 1801, when Martha Washington freed the late George Washington's enslaved people. You can find more information by going to mountvernon.org slash livestream. Joining Brenda on Freedom Skies is Associate Curator Jesse McLeod, my guest on today's show. Jesse is the lead curator of Lives Bound Together, an exhibit that debuted in 2016 and which tells the story of the enslaved community at Mount Vernon during George Washington's life. And as Juneteenth approaches, I wanted to learn more about the research that inspired this exhibit, how Jesse and her team put it together, and as importantly, the discoveries that have been made since its installation and what new questions we are pursuing that can help us better understand how the African-American community in Mount Vernon navigated slavery and freedom in the 19th century. As always, thanks so much to all of our listeners out there. We really appreciate your support, and hello to all of you joining us for the first time. And with that, let's return to Lives Bound Together on Juneteenth with Jesse McLeod. Well, Jesse, welcome back to the program. It's been a couple of years since you've been on the show, and uh, that was during the tenure of the old regime, or the, the old previous management, we might say. But we're delighted to have you back today, and we're having you back in part because this Friday is June 19th, the annual Juneteenth celebration. And for folks who may not have heard of that holiday before, Juneteenth is the moment in 1865 when enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, which was kind of um, the most remote place of the Confederacy, or I I guess you might say the most remote place where slavery existed in the United States, where these enslaved individuals learned that they had been freed as a consequence of the Emancipation Proclamation and, of course, the defeated Confederacy in the Civil War. And so we're doing a couple of things this week, including this podcast to celebrate this holiday. And actually, Jesse, before we dive in and talk about the subject of our conversation today, you're actually going to be doing a live stream this Friday with Brenda Parker. Is that correct? Uh, in celebration of this event? Yeah. Um, well, it's great to be here, Jim, again. <laughs> um, and yeah, absolutely. So on Friday at noon, we're doing a live stream and I'm really just playing a supporting role. Uh, the the star of the show will be Brenda Parker, who mm-hmm. is a character interpreter here, as well as our manager of um, African-American special projects and interpretation. And she will be presenting a um, an experience that explores the lives of four individuals who were enslaved here at Mount Vernon and what uh, January 1st, 1801 was like for each of them. January 1st, 1801 being the day that Martha Washington freed her late husband slaves. So um, we're excited about that program as an opportunity to honor Juneteenth as a a day of celebration and also to explore uh, the stories of people here at Mount Vernon who were enslaved. That's really exciting. What time does this take place? It's at noon. Okay. And so I imagine that we'll talk about some of the individuals that Brenda will, will be portraying or talking about this Friday. Well, we thought this would be a great opportunity to have you back on the program to talk about Lives Bound Together, which is an exhibition detailing the lives of the enslaved people at Mount Vernon. You know, unfortunately, people can't see it right now because the estate is closed. However, we do anticipate Mount Vernon opening in the coming days, at least on a limited basis, when people will be able to get into the uh, interior spaces of the mansion and the museums is another question, but uh, that day is coming soon, and hopefully in a couple of months, people will be able to see this exhibit again. Uh, Jesse, you were instrumental in developing that exhibition. You were actually on the podcast, as we said, to talk about it before, but I was wondering if you could take us through that exhibition once again, just to remind folks of what it is, because one of the things we want to do over the course of our chat today is talk about what we've actually learned since that exhibition launched. So can you, just for folks out there who may not have heard your previous discussion or may not have seen the exhibit in person, can you remind us of what Lives Bound Together is? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Lives Bind Together opened in the fall of 2016, and it is the first major exhibit that Mount Vernon has mounted on the topic of slavery. We've, of course, had interpretation that talked about slavery. We've had some small exhibits here and there, but this is the first time that we've really explored the topic in depth in our museum space. So we were really excited to have that opportunity. And the exhibit, as the title suggests, looks at how the lives of those enslaved in Mount Vernon were deeply interconnected with the life of George Washington and his family here. So you can't understand Washington's life, you can't understand Mount Vernon without understanding how slavery played an important role in the functioning of this place and in Washington's accomplishments. And so uh, within the exhibition, we really look at three major topics. We explore how enslaved labor was crucial to the operation of Mount Vernon. So uh, it was enslaved people who were harvesting Washington's crops, who were taking care of the household, who were cooking the Washington's meals, who were building many of the structures on the plantation. So it was really enslaved labor that allowed this place to operate and, and function during Washington's lifetime. We also look at George Washington's views on slavery and how they changed over time. So Washington went from someone who was a pretty typical Virginia plantation owner as a young man to somebody who was deeply conflicted about slavery in the latter years of his life. And he ultimately chose to put in his will a provision that would free the slaves that he owned directly upon Martha's death. Um, ultimately, she chose to free them early. Um, but that emancipation provision was the culmination of several decades of ambivalence on Washington's part. So we explore kind of how that came to be. And then finally, and most importantly, in my view, we look at the lives and experiences of enslaved people themselves. So we look at how they endured the conditions of bondage with resilience, with resistance, and with creativity. So these people who, were, who had no choice but to labor for Washington's benefit were really able, in most cases, to carve out lives for themselves within the system of slavery, whether that was uh, keeping personal gardens and selling produce to the Washingtons to earn small amounts of money, whether it was um, purchasing family members after being freed um, in order to keep their families together, whether it was running away from slavery as a, a way to uh, seek freedom despite the great risks. Um, there are many really rich stories that we can tell about enslaved people. So one reason why we really wanted to do this exhibition is that Mount Vernon was incredibly well documented. So Washington was a meticulous record keeper, and because of his prominence, so many of those records were saved over the years. So we're really able to piece together the lives of these individuals in a way that very few other uh, plantation sites can, especially uh, plantations from the 18th century. So we really have all of this incredibly rich and poignant material that allows us to explore the stories of enslaved people in a lot of depth. And that is something that is, is unusual, like I said, and we really wanted to showcase that. Well, wonderful. And I want to actually pick up on a couple of those points because you started to actually address some questions that I've had in the back of my mind. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the exhibition's origin story. You know, part of it is, as you suggest, that Mount Vernon does have such a rich documentary record of the enslaved community at the plantation, unlike other estates. But but I was also wondering if you could tell me how that origin story fits in with the general interpretation of slavery at Mount Vernon over the years. Yeah, so I'd say the exhibition, while we started planning it in 2013, I believe, yeah, about three years in advance of the opening, it, it has really been in the works uh, on a larger level for several decades. So uh, Mount Vernon you know, 50 years ago, didn't talk all that much about slavery. Um, in the 1960s, the greenhouse slave quarters opened as a furnished space for guests to visit, um, but there really wasn't much active interpretation of the lives of enslaved people here. Um, it wasn't really until the 1980s and 1990s that interpretation started to become more active and we started to really tell those stories in earnest. And a lot of that is thanks to the work of Mary Thompson, who I think you've had on the podcast, who is Mount Vernon's research historian, who's been looking into slavery here uh, for 40 plus years. And her work is really the foundation for almost everything that we do now when it comes to interpreting slavery. So in the 1990s, Mount Vernon uh, started 
offering a specialty walking tour on the topic of slavery. In subsequent years, we um, built a reproduction slave cabin on the Pioneer Farm site. We refurnished the greenhouse slave quarters to be more historically accurate. We revamped um, the interpretation in the mansion and other spaces when it came to slavery. So there have been all these kind of small and small and large changes over the years that have really moved us towards a more inclusive and more historically accurate narrative here. And we really, when we were deciding what exhibition should come next in the museum in 2012, 2013, it was really unanimous on the part of staff in the uh, collections department mm -hmm. that slavery was a topic that we needed to cover because we had all this material and because, um, it was really a story that needed to be told in, in that level of detail. So it was kind of building off of years of, of those small changes that led us to decide, you know, this is the moment. Well, I'm wondering if you could talk about the space between when you decided that this is what you wanted to do and the actual launch of the exhibition, because as you rightly say, there's a heck of a lot of work that goes into mounting something like this. And I think that that sometimes can be lost on visitors who are, you know, enjoying the great content that they're seeing and they're captivated by the stories that the museum curators are telling. So can you give us a little bit of a sense of what it actually takes to mount something like this, to actually put on an exhibition that has the kind of staying power that this one has? Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're right that a lot of people don't realize what goes into an exhibit. When I tell folks that it took about three, three and a half years of planning to put this on, they're often shocked. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, that felt like it was barely enough time. <laughs> um, and we were fortunate because had we had to start the research from scratch, it, it would have taken much, much longer. But fortunately, as I mentioned, Mary Thompson had this huge body of research that we were able to build off of. Um, so we, we had the research, we had the information, but the, the main challenge with the exhibition was uh, choosing the objects and shaping the narrative. So exhibits are are generally object-based and particularly here because we have such a wonderful collection, we really want to use objects to, to tell a story. And so with this exhibition, um, we, we of course wanted to showcase our collection, um, but one challenge that we had was that there aren't necessarily a ton of objects that belong to the enslaved community or mm -hmm. documents that were written by enslaved people themselves because of course most were never given the opportunity to become literate. And so we had to figure out how to tell a story through objects that wouldn't just be from George and Martha Washington's perspective. So that was, that was one of the biggest challenges. Um, and what we ultimately chose to do was um, tell the story through the lens of biography. So because we have all this information, we're able to piece together the stories of individual people's lives we selected 18 different individuals and we structured the story or the exhibit, I should say, around their stories. So we, we picked people who had a, a variety of different experiences um, who could help us tell different aspects of, of the story of slavery here at Mount Vernon. And we worked with our uh, graphic designer to develop conjectural silhouettes that would represent each of those people. And so in the galleries, when you go in today, you see in each gallery three or four individuals who you kind of encounter. And it helps, I think, visitors kind of understand slavery on a more personal and human level. Um, and so as we developed the exhibit, um, fleshing out those stories was one of the, the biggest tasks. So what we really uh, did was um, took all the information we had about each of those people's lives, and we um, used it to craft a biography, which is available for visitors to explore on a touchscreen that's next to the silhouette in the galleries. And um, that is really kind of the, the main way that we, we tell the story is kind of through, through those individuals' experiences. And then, of course, we have objects that, that supplement those stories and that allow us to place those people kind of tangibly um, here at Mount Vernon, talk about how they might have interacted with those objects, how in the case of archaeological artifacts, they might have even owned those objects because archaeology is 
um, one of the few ways that we can actually access material that enslaved people owned or used themselves. Um, so the, the development process um, was, as I mentioned, picking the objects, coming up with those narratives um, so that we could structure the story around, around individual people. And then, you know, when you're talking about an exhibit, there are a million little things that, mm. um, you know, the general public might not necessarily think of. So, um, you know, you have to decide what kind of tablet you're going to use for the interactive. You have to pick the color scheme and the fonts. You have to um, make sure that all the objects that need them have mounts um, to make sure that they're secure in their cases. Um, you have to, you know, do things as mundane as refinish the floors and refit the lighting in the, in the exhibit. And so um, all of those things really add up to, to quite a long process, but um, we, we really felt good about how everything came together. Um, and I think having that amount of time allowed us to um, be pretty thoughtful about how we uh, put, put everything in place. And one thing I'll add um, to, to that point is that the, the long lead time also allowed us to uh, conduct some outreach and have conversations with important stakeholders, especially the descendant community. Mm -hmm. So there are a fair number of um, people today who can trace their ancestry back to those who were enslaved at Mount Vernon. And of course, as we, as historians and researchers are telling this story, um, you know, for us, it's kind of an academic exercise in a lot of ways, but for these people, it's, it's their family, it's their personal story. And so we really wanted to make sure that um, we had earned their trust, that they felt that we were appropriate stewards of their family history and that we would do justice to their ancestors. And so we had a lot of conversations with descendants and ultimately we uh, started an oral history project that, um, will live on in our archives. We interviewed uh, descendants um, for about an hour each. And so those longer conversations are preserved. And then we took highlights from them and created a video that is featured at the end of the exhibition so that visitors can really access the perspectives of descendants and really understand what their own family history means to them, You know what the connection to Mount Vernon has, um, has meant for them in their own lives. How long did it actually take to install this exhibit? Yeah, so we closed down the museum galleries in May, I believe it was. And we spent the summer deinstalling the previous exhibit, installing this one, and it opened in um, the end of September. So it was, let's see, about four months, four, four and a half months that it took to kind of turn everything around. Um, so it was a pretty pretty long um, mm -hmm. turnaround time. Um, but there was a lot of physical changes that we had to make to the galleries and, um, you know, a lot of different components to install. So we certainly needed all of that time. Oh, sure. And who were some of the folks that worked on this project besides yourself? So we had kind of a core exhibit team of about five people. So I uh, was I am an associate curator. I was the lead curator for the exhibit, but our senior curator, Susan Shelwer, oversaw the process as she does for all our exhibits. And then we had uh, our collections manager, um, Elizabeth Chambers, our exhibits registrar, Michelle Payne. They uh, deal with some of the more logistical side of, of exhibit installation and planning. So, you know, taking measurements of objects, making sure that they're in the right place at the right time, making sure that we have mounts made, that kind of thing. We also had a project manager, Hannah Fries, who kind of helped everybody, you know, get things in on time, make sure we didn't miss deadlines and all of that. Um, and then externally, we had a, an exhibits designer, Chuck Mack, and a graphic designer, Sally Comport, who we contracted with. And they came up with the aesthetic for the exhibit, um, the layouts of the cases and the objects. Um, Sally did a wonderful job designing the silhouette. Mm -hmm. She's a really talented illustrator. Um, and so that was kind of the core exhibit team, but there's kind of an ever expanding set of um, concentric circles as you think about who impacted 
this project. So, of course, as I mentioned, Mary Thompson was an invaluable resource, both in her terms of her previous work and also as we were had questions about things. You know, you go to Mary and she always knows. She's kind of the font of all wisdom when it comes to George Washington and Mount Vernon. Um, we also worked with our new media team who designed the interactives in-house for us. Our operations and maintenance team did a lot of the um, deinstalling of the previous exhibit, painting, building walls, that sort of thing. Uh, we worked with our education department to make sure that the materials uh, from the exhibit could be available to teachers who wanted to use the content in their classrooms. Uh, we worked with our marketing team to make sure that we were getting the word out that the exhibit was up. Um, and so, and of course we worked with our more public facing interpretation team to make sure that the content from the exhibit was being conveyed to the public on tours. So it was really kind of a Mount Vernon wide effort when you think about everything that went into it. Yeah, that definitely sounds like it was all hands on deck, but it certainly came together very well. Uh, in a moment, you know, I would like to talk about some of the things that we've learned about the enslaved community at Mount Vernon since the installation of Lives Bound Together. But before we get to that, was there anything that you learned over the course of this project or the discoveries that you made while you were organizing and mounting the exhibition that surprised you or that you didn't know before? Yeah, um, I get asked that question a lot. And it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to think about what surprised you when you've been so steeped in something for so long. <laughs> um, but sure. I think one one thing that... Um, I found really meaningful and that really shaped the way that I, that I think about Mount Vernon today is um, the, the way that we came up with to frame our decorative arts collection um, and mm. to think about some of the objects that, uh, you know, previously we might not have associated with slavery at all. So we have one gallery in particular where we showcase a lot of objects from the Washington household, things like a coffee pot, coffee cups, a teapot. Um, we have a dining table all laid out with the Washington's um, Sev porcelain service. Um, we have, you know, cooking uh, utensils, or we have Washington's dressing table. We have all these kind of fine goods from, you know, England and France and China, things that the Washington's purchased um, that in many ways showcase their status and, and wealth and so forth. And um, previously those objects, most of them had been in our museum and we'd used them to talk about, you know, the things I just mentioned, how the Washington's mm -hmm. were um, conspicuous consumers of, you know, objects from around the world um, and so forth. But we realized, you know, you can tell those objects, you can use those objects to talk about slavery, to tell the story of slavery. And um, you can do that in a couple of ways. One is by thinking about where that wealth came from that the Washingtons used to purchase those objects. If you have something like um, that coffee pot, which is made of silver, which is incredibly expensive, you know, how was, Washington, how was Washington getting the wealth that allowed him to, to buy a costly object like that? Um, you can also think about the the products that the Washingtons were consuming, something like punch. You know, you take a punch bowl, mm -hmm. you can think about um, the rum and sugar that went into that beverage and how that was really connected to slavery on the sugar plantations where that product was being harvested and produced. Um, and as sh sugar, in many ways, was an engine that was driving the slave trade. And so, you know, you really can't separate punch as a beverage, a punch bowl as an object from the institution of slavery. And then finally, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you can really think about the life of these objects in terms of, um, in terms of slavery. It, as you're thinking about whose hands actually touched these things, mm -hmm. who was interacting mm -hmm. with them the most. Um, if you have, you know, all those plates and, and um, you know, silverware and, and so forth that are on the Washington signing table, who was setting that out to lay the table for the Washington's meals, who was cleaning up afterwards, who was polishing the silver, scrubbing the plates, putting everything back on the shelves of the house, not to mention cooking the food that was on those plates and um, pouring the wine and all of those different details. So when you really look at the objects in the mansion, almost everything is an artifact of slavery and you can really connect almost everything in the house to the story of the enslaved people who were both working in the house and working throughout the Mount Vernon plantation. So that's one thing that I'd say really shifted the way that I look at our collection and look at our, the spaces that we have here at Mount Vernon is thinking about um, 
you know, the other people who occupied them and the other people who interacted with them and how their stories are really intertwined with the Washingtons. Well, I like the way that you frame that because one of the things that I've always contemplated as I'm walking through the exhibit is that dining room table. I mean, it's, you know, it's immaculately set up. It's very opulent. It has fine silverware, china and whatnot. But then you can easily imagine, you know, it's a, a very formal aristocratic kind of dinner taking place. But at the end of the day, it's not like George and Martha are clearing the dishes at the end of the meal or stripping the linens or, you know, as you say, polishing the silverware. Somebody else is doing that work. And it's an enslaved person doing that work. You know, and so every time you walk by and think, wow, that, that crystal really sparkles, you have to think about actually who it was that made that possible. It's a very visceral and, and visual way to see slavery in ways that you might not be able to see it or didn't think to see it in the first place. So research, of course, has been ongoing since the launch of Lives Bound Together in 2016. Can you tell us some of the things that we've learned about the community in recent years that we didn't know at the time of the exhibition's launch? Yeah, so I'll start out by saying a lot of the things we learned aren't necessarily blockbuster discoveries. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of little things that we that we learn by, you know, looking a second time at a certain reference or by discovering new references in the documentary record. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the discoveries we've made aren't necessarily, you know, headliners, um, but they're kind of little things that <laughs> together help us expand the picture of, of slavery. Um, but there are a couple things that have been headliners, and one in particular that I that I will mention. Sure. Um, so Hercules was the Washington's cook, and mm-hmm. he is somebody who um, has a really compelling story and. Unfortunately, it's kind of maddening that this happened, that the timing was as it was. But um, after the exhibition opened, we learned um, some really fascinating things about his life. So Hercules, just to give a bit of background for those who don't Mm -hmm. know, he had been acquired by George Washington from Washington's neighbor, John Posey, um, who lived on, on property just adjacent to Mount Vernon. Um, Washington acquired him around 1770. And by the 1780s, Hercules was serving as a cook at Mount Vernon. Um, He was actually taken by the Washingtons to Philadelphia to work in the president's house. And he was well known for his culinary skill. He was allowed to sell um, certain um, kind of leftovers from the kitchen. Um, They were called slops. It was things like feathers or or ash or animal fat. those things were used as for industrial purposes in the 18th century. And, and Hercules was able to earn some money by selling those. He could use that money to buy uh, nice clothes and a, a pocket watch and a cane. And there are descriptions of him kind of walking through the streets of Philadelphia, finally attired, kind of waving to his admirers. So he's kind of this larger than life figure. And in the fall of 1796, Washington actually sends Hercules back to Mount Vernon. We don't know exactly why. Um, But at Mount Vernon, he was assigned to manual labor uh, because the family wasn't there to cook for. And Washington was always concerned about the labor of enslaved people being used efficiently. So at Mount Vernon, Hercules was assigned to do things like crushing rocks to make gravel or making bricks um, or, you know, other other um, tasks like that that were certainly a far cry from what he had been used to managing the kitchen of the most important man in America in Philadelphia. And so several months after he had been sent back to Mount Vernon, actually on Washington's 65th birthday, February 22nd, 1797, Hercules actually ran away from Mount Vernon. And hmm. up until a couple years ago, we didn't know what happened to him. There had been one... Um, letter that indicated that he might have been spotted in New York City, um, but it was it was very unclear what his fate was. So as a separate uh, story, part of this story, um, there is a painting that is at a museum in Spain, in Madrid, called the Museo Tizen Bornemitza. And this painting very mysteriously had the title Portrait of George Washington's Cook. And it was attributed to Gilbert Stuart, who, of course, was the artist who painted the famous Athenaeum portrait of George Washington that's on the dollar bill. And so um, this was very odd because there aren't many portraits of enslaved people. Um, There was no record of Hercules sitting for Gilbert Stuart. Um, 
it would have been very unusual for him to have done so. Um, so there were a lot of questions. And we were very fortunate that we were able to work with that museum in Spain to get that painting on loan to Mount Vernon for the exhibition, at least for the first six months of, of the exhibit. And um, having it here actually allowed us to study it in more detail. And so at the end of its time, right before it went back to Spain, we had a study day where we invited scholars and curators and others who have um, relevant expertise to come and examine this painting and to try to help us figure out, you know, is this Hercules? How, you know, what's the story here? Mm -hmm. And what that study day concluded was basically the painting is not by Gilbert Stuart. This, the style is, is wrong. Um, we had Stuart experts looking at authenticated Stuart paintings in this painting. And it's pretty clear it's not by the same artist. Mm -hmm. um, that leads us to, to think that there's really no reason to think that it is Hercules because Stuart was really the main connection to the Washington um, household as we were thinking about that painting. You know, there's no record of, of Hercules being painted. Um, this painting has always been over in Europe and England. Um, so that kind of eliminated the identity of Hercules as a possibility. And then finally, the, the subject of this portrait is wearing this tall white hat that looks sort of like a chef's toque. Um, but when you look at it more closely, it's actually not. It, it is um, kind of, it goes straight up and has a lace fringe along the top. It's not, not a chef's hat. So we determined that it wasn't a cook either. So the, the painting wasn't by Gilbert Stuart, it's not Hercules, and it's not a cook, which you might think is disappointing, but it was actually really useful um, because you know, there had been a lot of questions about that painting and, um, you know, we were really able to, to kind of take off the table the possibility that it was Hercules. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of a long roundabout way of saying when we learned that that painting almost certainly wasn't Hercules, it kind of prompted renewed research into, okay, what happened to Hercules? What, where did he end up? You know, what, if he what, didn't go off to Europe and, and um, have his portrait painted, as some people had posited, you know, where, what happened to him? And so um, I, I can't take credit for this research. Um, this is something that uh, Raman Ganeshram and Sarah Krasny of the Westport Historical Society really undertook. Um, Raman had just written a historical novel about Hercules, so she was very invested in learning more about his story. And what they discovered is that in uh, the records of the second African burial ground in Manhattan, there is a notation that a Hercules Posey died on May 15th, 1812 of tuberculosis. And it notes that he was 64 years old and he was born in Virginia. And that age is right around the age that we think Hercules was. Posey is the last name of the man who owned Hercules before George Washington. Hercules was certainly uh, born in Virginia, as far as we know. And so all of those clues lead us to believe that that, that is the Hercules. Wow. Um, so he was in New York City. He died there in 1812. And further uh, supporting that um, that discovery is that if you look in New York City directories from um, the years prior to 1812, um, those directories basically list the names and addresses of individuals living in the city as well as their mm -hmm. occupations. And Hercules Posey is listed several years um, in New York City. For most years, he's listed as a laborer, but in one year, he's listed as a cook. And that really sealed the deal <laughs> that this was, this was the Hercules from Mount Vernon. This is the man that we were looking for. So as it turns out, Hercules, while he wasn't painted in that portrait, uh, he did end up in New York City. He worked there as a laborer and a cook, and he died there in 1812. So we can finally tell the end of Hercules' story, which is incredibly satisfying and incredibly um, poignant to, to know what happened to this man after so many years of, of just knowing that he ran away and not knowing what his fate was. So he did reach freedom. He was able to live as a free man and die as a free man. And so that was probably the most exciting discovery. And that literally did make headlines. <laughs> there was an article about it in uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer um, a, a couple years ago that goes into some more details about the story. Um, so that, that was incredibly exciting. That's really amazing. And it's also a great example of how pursuing one lead or pursuing one source, even if you have to rule it out, like you did with the portrait, leads to something else entirely. 
And you actually probably ended up with more information than you could have had by just looking at that portrait. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a good thing that we had nagging questions about the portrait and we um, <laughs> took the time to really rule that out because you're absolutely yeah. right. That then made people think, well, you know, where haven't we looked? What other, what other leads mm-hmm. could we pursue? When you learned that he had a good long life in freedom and was laboring for himself. And when I, one of the things I'm thinking about now is, and I think it's fascinating to contemplate is, was there ever a moment when he, he felt comfortable or began to feel comfortable? I mean, when did, when did he take that surname? You know, when did he feel comfortable presenting himself in society and in the community, knowing that Washington was probably looking for him? And, you know, we know that Washington uh, and Martha aggressively pursued escaped slaves like Oney Judge. Yeah, it's interesting. You'd think that, you know, I would assume that it probably wouldn't be af- until after January 1st, 1801, when Martha chose to emancipate um, her husband's slaves because Hercules was owned directly by Washington. One thing that we're, that we'll talk about in the, the program on Friday is that that emancipation provision didn't apply to many of the people who were here because they were owned by the estate of Martha's first husband. But, sure. um, you know, that, that's an aside, but um, yeah, Hercules was not directly by Washington. So he would have been freed as of 1801. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would suspect that it wasn't until after that point that he probably felt comfortable, um, you know, being more of a public figure. Uh, Cause we certainly don't, don't see anything um, about him prior to that in, in letters. And he was such a well-known figure that, you know, if he were kind of, out in public more, you'd think that somebody would have alerted the Washington mm-hmm. as, as happened with Oni Judge. Well, that's really remarkable. And, I, and I'm wondering too, I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head, thinking back to the, uh, the start of this program uh, and that significance of that 1801 moment as an emancipation day for half the enslaved population of Mount Vernon. And you had suggested that uh, many of the enslaved people, perhaps all of them, were not taught to read or write. And, and I'm wondering then, uh, by what means Hercules received information about the terms of Washington's will and what, what he must have felt upon receiving that knowledge. What did he think in that moment, knowing that uh, they were going to come after him, uh, that, that there was no more legal recourse to pursue him and, and try to reclaim him? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And that's that's one thing that w- was a big challenge with this exhibition is really trying to imagine the perspective and and the the thought process of people who were in slavery and didn't leave us you know voluminous records of their of their musings as Washington did um and yeah it's it must have been a challenge being so far away from the community that he had grown up in mm-hmm. um being separated from um you know from from that community and and also from his family actually yeah. one one really poignant part of Hercules's story that I didn't mention is that in 1798, I believe, so about a year after he ran away, a French visitor to Mount Vernon um, left. He, so a French man visited Mount Vernon. He left an account of his experience, and he recalled speaking to Hercules's daughter, who was um, a teenager at the time, and he asked her, "You know, are you upset that your that your father ran away and that you?" can no longer see him. And she said, no, because he's free now. And, you know, that is this really incredibly poignant reminder that, you know, even running away to freedom, Hercules was making enormous sacrifices and leaving some members of his family behind. Um, And, you know, it's really hard to imagine what must have been going through his head as he made that calculation of whether to run away and how, how to go about doing it. Um, so trying to kind of conjure up the perspective of enslaved people and to really do justice to their stories when we don't have their perspective is one of the biggest challenges of interpreting this topic. Well, it's just a great example of when you keep digging and digging and digging and eventually something turns up. Now, we had talked off camera here uh, prior to the podcast about some of the work that your colleagues in the uh, archaeological department have been doing since Lives Bound Together launched. Can you tell us something about their work? Yeah, so the archaeological survey of the cemetery started in 2014, and they've been working every summer since to uh, map the location and orientation of all of the grave shafts in that cemetery. So they aren't actually disturbing any human remains. They're Mm -hmm. 
simply kind of understanding the spatial arrangement of, of that space. And um, that's a really exciting project because the cemetery is a rare space where enslaved people really were in control, unlike almost every other part of Mount Vernon where Washington uh, was, was dominant. Um, so that has been a really powerful project to really understand how that space is used. And as of this past field season, they have found 86 graves in the cemetery, which, you know, is a pretty big yeah. number. Um, mm -hmm. And they've only, they haven't covered all of the area that they know the cemetery, um, you know, was, was placed in. So um, mm -hmm. there are certainly more graves um, to be discovered. Um, but, you know, 86 is, is a really powerful number to consider. And what's been interesting is that um, in recent years, they've also um, found evidence that there were earthen mounds over the, the graves. So rather than mm. um, there may have been some other type of marking, but um, those don't survive, unfortunately. But what they have discovered is that there is evidence of, of earth kind of being piled up over the graves, which is a fairly common practice um, in the 18th century, um, especially in African-American cemeteries. And so we think that that may be how the graves were um, distinguished or one way the graves were distinguished. And so one thing that we're thinking about moving forward is um, once that archaeological survey is complete, you know, how can we, um, once the archaeological site is filled in, which is, you know, what, you know, best practice for archaeological mm -hmm. sites, um, how do we mark those graves? How do we honor the people who are buried there? Um, in a way that kind of maintains the historical integrity of the site, um, but also lets people know, you know, that there are people beneath the soil um, in, in this place and really helps people gather what a sacred space it was. Of course, we do have uh, the slave memorial at that site, and that is a really powerful reminder for folks. But I think having something to mark the graves will be um, a, a great way to to just enhance the mm -hmm. kind of spiritual power of that site. So that's something that we're working on in coming years is, um, you know, how can we, how can we do that in a, in a respectful and uh, meaningful way? And are all the people who are buried there, do they date from George Washington's time or do they predate his ownership of Mount Vernon? Yeah. So we think it's actually kind of going in the other direction. So they, we believe it was used in the eight. 18th century when George Washington mm -hmm. lived here. We know for sure it was used in the 19th century after George Washington's lifetime. So the only documentary records of the cemetery are from the 19th century. Um, but there are, uh, there is reason to believe that it was used during Washington's time based mm -hmm. on some of the artifacts that have been found there and, and that kind of thing. Um, but we do have some records of visitors coming to Mount Vernon in the 19th century. Um, so they were coming kind of as tourists to pay respects to Washington and visiting his tomb. And the cemetery is actually very close to Washington's new tomb, which was uh, completed in the 1830s. And so you have people coming to the tomb and they, a few of them mentioned seeing the African-American cemetery, you know, in a, a nearby location. Um, so we think that it continued to be used both for the enslaved community under Washington's heirs in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and then also for free people who had been enslaved in Mount Vernon and then were living in the local area. So people actually, it seems, came back to be buried at Mount Vernon, um, which gives you a sense of the fact that, you know, this was home for a lot of people, not mm -hmm. just George Washington. And even if it was a site of enslavement, it was also you know, a place that had meaning to them because it was where they lived, where they grew up, where they had been with their family and so forth. So, um, you know, I think that is a really important part of the story of that place as well. You know, it was a place that people came back to, to be buried with their relatives and with their community. And it had a, a really long um, period of active use. We think, you know, a hundred years or more. Well, as you've successfully answered some of the big outstanding questions about Hercules and are making progress on the graveyard of the enslaved people at Mount Vernon, what are some of the big outstanding questions that you and your colleagues are pursuing right now? What, you know, what's keeping you coming into the office every day? Yeah. So, 
you know, there, there are a million little questions, like I said before, um, <laughs> there, there are always like these little things that build up into big things. But um, I'd say the, the big thing that we really want to understand better is what happened to, well, there, there are kind of two parts of this question. So what, mm-hmm. what happened to the enslaved community after George Washington died and after Martha Washington died? So I mentioned before that Washington's will only freed you know, a little less than half of the people who were enslaved here. So um, the people who were freed, we often lose track of them in the local records. Um, we know that many of them settled in surrounding areas, um, but we don't always know where, you know, um, what what happened to people. And so discovering more about those formerly enslaved people and what their lives were like in freedom is one thing that that we really would like to do. So that's mm-hmm. kind of one half of that question. Then the second half is what happened to the people who remained enslaved, who were owned by the Custis estate and who were inherited by Martha Washington's grandchildren. And so those individuals were divided into four lots. Um, you know, they were considered property. And so they were yeah. assigned a value divided into four lots and they were um, divided among her, her three granddaughters and her grandson. And we know a little bit more about those individuals um, because, you know, ironically, it was in a slave owner's interest to keep track of, of enslaved people because they were property. Um, so we do we do have some information. We have a set of lists from 1802 when that division took place, which suggests which household each of the enslaved people ended up in. But after that point, the records are a lot more sketchy and incomplete. And so one thing that we'd really like to do is try to figure out both um, confirm who ended up where and also mm-hmm. what happened to folks in the ensuing decades. And so um, we ha- there are several people who are doing great research on this, scholars that we've been working with, um, and that we've answered a lot of questions, um, you know, even in, in recent years. But there's a lot more to do. And one thing that you and I have talked about, Jim, is the mm-hmm. power, the potential power of a database to really help us bring these stories together. And we have a database that we used as we were developing the exhibit that was put together by a team of Mount Vernon staff and volunteers, which basically uh, collects all of the references to enslaved people from Washington's own lifetime, uh, from his papers in Mount Vernon records. And it allows us to track what happened to specific people over the course of of the 18th century. Um, But unfortunately, that project really stops in 1799 with George Washington's Mm -hmm. death. And one thing we'd love to do is expand it into the 19th century and bring together all of the references that are scattered in the records of places like Arlington House and Tudor Place and Woodlawn and um, the what are called the free Negro registers in Alexandria and Washington, D.C. and Fairfax County. Um, all of these places that have little references to what happened to folks who used to be at Mount Vernon. Um, so that's one thing that that we hope is in the future that will allow us to paint a clearer picture of what happened to people after George and Martha Washington's lifetimes. Well, it's an exciting project, as I can attest. And I, you know, I just play a very small role in it. But what I've seen... Uh, out there in places like the Fairfax County Court Records uh, and other, you know, in conversation with, uh, you know, colleagues like you and Scott Casper, hey, the new president of the American Antiquarian Society, by the way, congratulations, Scott, uh, and Cassie Good, that there is a great deal of potential. And, you know, by bringing all of this together in one place, we can tell new stories about uh, the enslaved community and, and their lives in slavery and in freedom. Well, I like this point you make about little questions because it just goes to show that little things mean a lot. And when you add all of these together, you know, the sum of the parts, you get a more complex and richer portrait of this community and the social world that they lived in and and who they were. Do we have a sense of how enslaved people who remained in the Custis family by the mid-19th century learned of their freedom during the Civil War, or I guess I should say afterwards, or who might have freed themselves during some of the military campaigns during that conflict? Yeah, that's a great question. And we don't know all that much. One of the challenging things is that the records for the the households of the the Custis grandchildren are much more spotty than mm-hmm. George Washington's own records. And of course, by the time you're getting to, um, you know, the 1860s, the Civil War, that's all of the Custis grandchildren had 
died by that point. Um, and most of the enslaved people were actually, um, you know, children and grandchildren of those who Mm -hmm. had been at Mount Vernon. Um, so that's one thing that we really hope to learn more about is how these generations, um, kind of carried on within slavery in some cases in freedom and, you know, how these families maintain connections with each other, um, despite the challenges of, of being enslaved. Um, so really painting a full picture, um, in some cases, all the way up to the present day through descendants is, is one thing that we really hope to, to do more fully as we move forward. Well, that sounds terrific. And Jesse, how much longer do folks have to see lives bound together once they are able to get back into the museum space itself? Yeah. So initially lives bound together was going to close this fall, but because of the recent events and Mount Vernon's closure, it has been extended. So Uh, We don't have an exact end date yet, but it will likely be at least through um, late spring, early summer of 2021. So you have about another year um, that the exhibit will be up. So we hope that people will be able to come to Mount Vernon once we fully open and and experience it. And I will say if folks aren't able to come to Mount Vernon in person to see the exhibit, we do have almost all of the content that is in the galleries on our website. So if you go to mountvernon.org slash slavery um, or mountvernon.org slash lives bound together, you should be able to uh, look at all of the information, see many of the objects that we have on display, read about the biographies of enslaved people and all of that. So that will live on in perpetuity. And and even after the exhibit closes, we'll have all that information available. Well, that sounds great. And we'll certainly link to those pages in the show notes here so that people who are uh, in Washington, D.C. or still in quarantine in California can check that out. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. We, we really appreciate you taking your time, and we look forward to seeing uh, you along with Brenda Parker this Friday on the live stream. And until then, take care. Thanks, Jim. This is a lot of fun. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.